0: Welcome everyone back to American West History and Lore. I am your host, Paul Workman, and as always, I'm glad to be with you once again to tell tales of the incredible American West. Today's episode will be the beginning of a multi-part episode revolving around the legendary tale of the Lost Roads Mines and others surrounding lost treasure that is connected to it. And believe it or not, this is a very popular Lost Mine tale, but isn't covered as much as one might think. This legend has intrigued me for quite some time, as well as many others, as we will find out as the story unfolds. It's been part of Utah's lore for many, many years and continues to pull people in, and once hooked, they can't let go. What's fact and what's folklore within these stories? Well, that will be for you, the listener, to decide on your own, as I can only relate to you the information and give you the source material some primary, some secondary, some oral that has been verbally passed down through the generations. So, where to begin? Well, for part one, we're really going to focus on the namesake of the treasure, Thomas Rhodes, and why the Lost Troll was named after him, as well as the Mormon Church's supposed involvement with the mines, as well as where the treasure within these mines may have originated from. A great folklore tale is like a tree. At first, the tree sprouts out of the ground, and this is its genesis. One can focus on it knowing that this is it for the moment. No need for your eyes to wander trying to tell which direction the branches are going because it's small and easy to focus on. However, as time moves on, the tree does grow and the branches start to spread out and stray from one another, making it much harder to focus on the tree itself and rather than keeping your eyes fixed on one spot, you are forced to focus on the individual branches at separate times, making it harder to focus on where the tree began to grow. This is how I view the legend of the Lost Roads Mines. It clearly started somewhere as something solid, perhaps based off of a single truth, or perhaps based off of a single fib that someone started so many years ago. In any case, the story has grown and branched off to involve not just one mind, but several, and not just one origin story, but also several. It has become harder to focus on the genesis of the quote-unquote tree as time has moved on. The Lost Rose Mines have been a hot topic of debate for many, many years within many social circles. Treasure hunters from all over the world discuss it, and members of the Mormon Church discuss it, especially those that live in Utah. Now, you're probably asking yourself, why is he singling out Mormons? It's because much of the legend concerning these Lost Mines is all based around a select couple of people who, in fact, have the last name Rhodes and just so happen to have been part of the Mormon religion, Let's connect the dots, shall we? In the mid-1800s, the Mormon religion was still young. It was in April of 1847 that the first group of Mormon pioneers arrived in what would become the state of Utah in an attempt to flee persecution from those who didn't agree with their religious beliefs and practices. As with all established religions, they needed funding to function, right? The Mormons were no exception. Again, like other religions... The Mormon Church counts on donations from its members to help with financial support, you know, for building church houses, printing materials, and so on. These donations are also known as tithes. Now, I don't want to dig too deep into this, but it is important to note that when the Mormons left on their trek to Utah, most of them scrimped and saved in order to purchase the provisions and supplies they needed in order to get to Utah. So, when they arrived at their new home, most of them were poor. However, keep in mind that it didn't really matter if they had money when initially arriving because there was nothing to buy anyway. They were creating their own new land and their with their own new government. When, however, buying and selling did become necessary, the Mormons really didn't have a set currency. Because they had dealings with so many different kinds of people, they used whatever they had and whatever was available, which included U.S. currency as well as Spanish dollars, French francs, as well as other foreign coinage and currency. This was until Brigham Young and Council decided it was necessary to generate their own currency, which they did by making handmade scrip signed by Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball, with Thomas Bullock signing as treasurer. Soon after, this paper currency was made into $1 and $5 increments and backed by gold dust. However, this venture wasn't going well, and it was soon realized that what was needed was coinage. What would eventually become known as the Mormon Mint produced many gold coins, but being only 8.899 fine gold as it had a smidge of silver alloy in it. The coins were made from gold dust brought from members of the church who were also miners from California and many of whom paid their tithes with the gold dust. This is where we begin to branch out, so to speak, and delve into where else the Mormons could have potentially been getting their gold from for their mint as well as other things such as the Salt Lake Temple. Atop the Salt Lake Temple stands a 12-foot, 5-inch statue of a Mormon religious figure known as Moroni, which according to Mormons, Moroni was the last Nephite prophet and he was also the angel that led Joseph Smith to the golden plates that he would translate into the Book of Mormon. The statue was hammered out of copper and then coated with 22-karat gold leaf. In hushed tones, members and non-members of the Mormon Church alike claim that the gold for the coating of Angel Moroni indeed came from treasures found within secret mines from the remote mountains of northeastern Utah. According to the lore of the Lost Roads mines, it wasn't just the gold dust tithes being paid by diligent church members that was supporting the mint and plating church decor. It was also gold being brought in by one of Brigham Young's most trusted confidants, and this confidant's son, from sacred mines hidden in the Uinta Mountains. That confidant was a man by the name of Thomas Rhodes. According to LDS, a.k.a. Mormon History, Thomas Rhodes headed west with his family in 1846 to hit the gold fields of California, and in 1849 he led a company of around 50 people from Sacramento to the Salt Lake Valley, with what the church calls, quote, substantial amounts of gold, end quote. Supposedly, Rhodes gave Brigham Young $17,000 worth of gold from California for tithes, and this put Young in a predicament. On one hand, Young felt as though allowing members of the church to focus on treasure hunting rather than the establishment of the church would hinder its growth. On the other hand, the church was in need of some funding to really get its feet on the ground. In the Journal of Discourses, Volume 8-9, through which the Church claims is not an official publication of the religion, but rather a compilation of speeches from Church authorities put together over time by several transcribers, Brigham Young is quoted as saying, If I knew where there was a gold mine, I would not tell you. I do not want you to find one, and I do not mean that you shall. Or, if you do, it shall be over my faith. We have gold enough in the world and it is all the Lord's, and we do not deserve more than we get. Let us make good use of that and send out the elders." You see, Brigham eventually assigned callings to certain members of the church to go mine for gold in California, leaving other members to build and establish roots in Salt Lake. This is where the cut and dry history of the Mormon church and its mining endeavors end and the legend of the church and mining begins. As far as I can tell when asked about the mines in the Uinta Mountains, the church neither confirms or denies their existence as they claim they don't know anything about the matter either way. But expounding on the topic of Brigham Young calling on certain members of the church to go and mine for gold in an attempt to help fund the church, this is one of the tasks he thrust upon Thomas Rhodes. And we'll come back to Thomas here in just a minute, but... You see, there was a U-Indian chief named Chief Walker, or Wakara, and according to author Kerry ross in his book The Gold of ker he was set to be made the keeper of sacred gold hidden within the bowels of the earth somewhere in what is known today as the Uinta Mountains. There are several ideas where the sacred gold originated from, but it's never been officially declared, but it is important to note them. Some say that the gold is that of the famed Montezuma's treasure. As many know, Hernan Cortes, a conquistador from Spain, showed up in Tenochtitlan, known today as Mexico City, in 1519 and attacked the Aztecs, wanting to take over the town, so to speak, and take all their gold. The Aztecs eventually ran them out of town, but in 1521, Cortez came back with vengeance and took over Tenochtitlan, but not before Montezuma's people packed up their treasures and headed north with them. Some say that Montezuma's treasure is spread all throughout the southwest of the United States and some say that some of it made its way up to the Uinta Mountains where it was hidden and now that you Indians watch over it and protect it. Others say that a tribe from the Book of Mormon known as the Jaredites stored the gold in these sacred mines just before being killed by another Book of Mormon tribe, the Nephites. Another more plausible theory is that it was all cached by Spanish miners throughout the years, as evidence exists that they were indeed in the area at several different points in history. In any case, for the sake of the legend, the gold was cached somewhere in the Uinta Mountains. Chief Wakara was to be responsible for protecting this great treasure, but in order to gain that responsibility, he initially questioned his destiny of life and went into the Uinta Mountains to seek guidance from the great spirit Tuat's. It was Tuats that showed Wakara in a vision where the sacred gold was and that it was his to protect and that there would come a time that the quote-unquote high hats would come to the land and that he was to give them and them alone the location to the sacred treasure. The quote-unquote high hats, he later discovered, would be the Mormons. Walcara eventually contacted Brigham Young and told him about his vision, and from there the stage was set to retrieve money for the sake of the building of the Mormon Church from the Ute's sacred gold mine known as Kershanab, when translated means, there dwells the great spirit. And the man that was appointed to collect from that sacred mine was indeed Thomas Rhodes. Alright folks, I hate to leave you hanging there, but that's going to do it for part one of the Legends of the Lost Rhodes Mines. Now that we have somewhat of an idea of the players in the story and have discussed the origins of the legend itself, in part two, we'll get into Thomas Rhodes' journey to the mines and introduce some more characters and their involvement in the retrieval of the gold, and in part three, we'll discuss some modern-day treasure hunters that have searched for the lost riches in the Uinta Mountains. Thanks for tuning in. I really hope you've enjoyed this little mini-series so far. If you like what you're hearing, I would very much appreciate it if you could head on over to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts, and leave a nice rating and review. It helps with the visibility of the show so that others can find it easier. As always, show notes for this episode can be found at AmericanWestHistoryAndLore.blogspot.com. And if you have any questions, comments, or show show suggestions, feel free to send them to me at ThePKWorkman at gmail.com or post them on the American West History and Lore Facebook page or you can go to the American West History and Lore Facebook group. Thanks again, and we'll catch you next time.